I'm Arlen Hamilton, and I'm an investor. In 2015, I launched Backstage Capital, a venture capital fund, after experiencing food and housing insecurity for most of my life. I wanted to invest in companies led by founders who are women, people of color, and LGBTQ, just like me. I have invested in more than 150 companies since 2015 and growing. I started Your First Million to understand what it was like to make your first million dollars, get your first million fans or downloads, and to see if there was a common thread between us all. Join me as I talk to people from all walks of life about how they got where they are, what they learned on the way, and where they're going. And for those of you who are wondering, yes, I made my first million. <laughs> Let's talk about it. They slept on me, but now they won't. Because I got a million. Fresh out the mud, but I'm clean and so. Because I got a million. I got my first million. I got my. Welcome back to your first million. It's Arlen. It is the end of the year, end of 2021. If you're listening to this when I first put this out, of course. What I love about podcasts is that almost every week or so, somebody reaches out and says, I just listened to the episode from September 2019, and I loved what you said about this. Or here's that code word that you used for that episode or whatever. I just, I just love that about podcasts. I'll, I'll never quite get over it, I think. So I want to say hi and wish you a happy holiday season. Ah, I know, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> Omicron, what you, what you doing, girl? What you doing? Um, what do we think? Do we think Omicron's a girl? I don't know. I don't know. Anywho, Omicron, please don't. Please don't. It's not cool what you're doing. Um, we didn't invite you. This isn't cool. You're crashing the party. So I was in New York and I was going to be there for another week or so. And Omicron was just acting a fool. So I said, no, I got to go home. So I flew back to L.A. And, uh, yeah, I um, L.A. is, you know, every, everywhere. Nobody is, is truly safe from this, the, the, con- the contagion. Now, I will use this time one more time to say that... Um, I just learned the exact numbers from a, from a doctor, uh, Osterholm, and he said you're 12 to 15 times more protected from death and hospitalization vaccinated than not vaccinated. So that to me is worth it, you know, I, and I know there are a lot of people who still haven't gotten vaccinated. I know you have your reasons I know some of you listen to this and hear me and you like what I do and what I stand for, but you just don't agree with me on the vaccination. You feel like this is something that is being put into my body. It is a chemical. It is a medicine. How do I know I can trust it? How do I know it won't make me sick or hurt me or even kill me? And I hear you. And I have had the longest and most detailed conversations about this with friends, colleagues, um, people in my in my in my orbit, more than probably any other topic I can remember. And um, I've heard you. I've I've listened. I've heard you. I just had that Dean Kane interview, um, which was not that. I mean, he got vaccinated. That should tell you something. Even with all of his opinions about things he got vaccinated because he's trying to stay alive. You know what I'm saying? Um, Trump was just at an event with Bill O'Reilly. being They were being just two knobs sitting on the stage, as they always are. And he not only said, get the vaccine, because I think he's trying to save, he realized the people that he's killing got to vote for him. But he also said he got a booster. When he was asked, he didn't volunteer but he, when he, that information, but when he was asked, he said it. Because why? Think about Trump. Think of whatever you think of him, right? You, one thing we can all agree on, I think, is that he is self-serving. He is going to survive no matter what. So Trump is going to do the thing 
that is going to give him the most chance of survival, whether that's in business, in the moment, you know, in the room, he'll knock over a grandmother if it means he's going to get out the room safely, right? So for him, that meant not all the stuff he's telling his people to do the past year and a half, all this taking horse stuff and doing this and drinking liquids. And what he did was he got vaccinated. He was on a protocol when he got COVID before he got vaccinated. And he took the booster. And I tell you what, when six months comes around or 12 months comes around and they tell us take another booster because this is going to be endemic and this is going to be a yearly thing, Trump, with his dumb ass, still, because he's a survivor, is going to get that booster each and every time. He'll be first in line. He'll knock people out the way to get it. That should tell you alone that at the very least, even if we don't agree that it's the mandates are right, it should tell you that the, the, the medicine itself is right. So we can argue and have politics about the mandates. It's not right that they're telling us to do. It's not right that people are rolling back abortion rights. It's not right. But let's think about in this moment, do you, do, what do we need in this moment? And what we need in this moment is for you to survive long enough to argue with me about whether it was right. What benefit do I have of lying to you or leading you astray? I'm trying to save your life. What benefit do I get? Don't get money. I don't get clout. I don't get uh, more room on the earth because, <laughs> you know what I mean? All I get is the, the joy and satisfaction of knowing maybe I saved somebody from going to the hospital when they didn't need to, or maybe even worse. So the people who are in your life telling you, please get vaccinated. We know, we hear you, we understand that there are risks involved. There are risks with everything. But there have been 800,000 deaths in America, in the U.S., since March 2020. Less than two years, 800,000 deaths from COVID. We know that. We may not know what the vaccine will do to us. But we know that. And that's, that's the, the odds I will take. Right? That's the odds I will take. It's, it's a messed up situation. It sucks. Nobody wants to go get vaccinated. Nobody wants that. But it's the thing that's going to protect you right now. And protect the people around you who can't protect themselves in some cases. So I, I'm hearing y'all. I'm hearing you because I had this one friend who, unfortunately, we had to stop working together, not at Backstage or Runner, but a different kind of work. And she, she just truly, truly believes, and I don't know, I hope she has changed her mind, but she, at least a few weeks ago, truly believes that there's some sort of government conspiracy, some white person in, you know, this is how I'm interpreting what she said. Some white person in power has a reason to get black folks vaccinated, and it's not good. Let me tell you something. I'll tell you what I told her, and I'll tell you a little bit extra. A black, I watched in, what was it, October, November? I was in Beverly Hills at an event for the Ebony Power 100, where I was one of the 100. It was like being at a royal wedding. It was the who's who and beautiful and gorgeous. And on that stage, one of the main people being touted was a black woman scientist who helped produce the Moderna uh, vaccine. She then went on to tell us that five of her Colleagues and the people she, I can't think of the word right now, but her train, her, her people, her staff who helped her do this in record time were black themselves all in college. So who is the big white man with the strings holding, trying to do something to black people in that scenario? No, instead what she did was saved hundreds 
of millions of lives in record time because, and this is how she explained it, because the tech and the science to build upon, to get us there, had already been worked on for years. She told us this amazing story about a slave who was brought over with what is considered the first vaccine, the thing that you, that you need in order to build a vaccine. He had it with him, wrapped up on a ship as he was, his body was bring, being brought over to become a slave. So she was, what she was trying to explain to us is, you know, this goes back centuries and it has been black led for a long time. And even before then, you can imagine the people of color who had a piece of it. Even if it had been built by a white man, <laughs> what I know is 800,000 people in the U.S. alone, millions around the world dead Unfortunately, and I'm so, so sorry if I'm triggering someone. I don't mean to be so blunt. Um, I, I, actually, I should say this. I do mean to be this blunt, but I don't mean to hurt anyone. But please think through. And if it's not you, if you're like, girl, I'm boosted. Who are you yelling at? <laughs> then just please send this part of the episode to somebody you care about. Just say, look, I'm going to pay you $10 just to listen to this 10 minutes. I just want you to listen to this 10 minutes and you know you can do whatever you want after that. Because it is so important. 12 to 15 times more protected with the vaccine than not. Yes, there are some side effects. Yes, some people have worse side effects. That's the case with anything, but not 800,000 deaths worth. And I know there are people who are even like, even further than that, they're like, wait, you know, wait two, three years, you'll see, you'll see. Those are odds I'm willing to take. They just have to be. I'd rather be here for two or three more years (laughs) than to get knocked out by the, by the evil I know. You know what I'm saying? Like that to me is, is um, biting your nose to spite your face. Like I'm not going to do it because maybe one day in the future, perhaps this vaccine may turn out to be dangerous. Sure, anything can. The paint in our rooms that we're sitting in can be, turn out to be dangerous. All sorts of things cause cancer that we didn't realize before. Of course, the vaccine could turn out to have dangers we didn't think of or that we did think of and feared. But today... As we climb towards a million people dead in the United States alone, this is the information we have today. These are the tools we have that we could have so easily, so easily been grappling for, scraping for, fighting for, for another one, two, five years plus in a different world if this had happened at a different time. We got this in months and we, the people over here sit letting it, letting it go to wait, literally letting it spoil because it has to be kept cold, letting uh, doses spoil while there are people in other countries who are dying as they run towards the vaccine because there's not enough to go around or it's not getting to them fast enough. And we're over here with the audacity to say, oh, no, it may one day girl and boy, if you don't sit your ass down, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm middle-aged now, okay? So <laughs> I, I, just, I just can't. And I love y'all. I love you. If I'm looking at you, I can't tell if you're vaccinated or not, right? So I love you all equally. I want what's best for you all equally. I don't know what that is. That's up to you what's best for you. But I can tell you that Trump got boosted and vaccinated as soon as he, his little surviving ass could. And most of those people who were spreading the misinformation got their asses, either got their asses vaccinated as fast as they could, including before it was probably eligible for their age group. They either got vaccinated or they're dead now. For the most part, I mean, of course there's some people who are in the middle. Who, who truly, honestly, forthrightly did not get vaccinated and that they were standing on their high ground and they're okay because these are odds, right? 
But there are two main categories, and you can look it up if you don't believe me. There's a category of people who are saying out loud, I didn't get vaccinated, or don't get vaccinated, maybe not even saying I didn't, but say don't get vaccinated, don't let the man get you. And these are white people, black people all over. But but really did get vaccinated at home or they didn't get vaccinated and day after day after day we hear about these stories about them either being severely ill or dying. You talk about free will and the mandates being uh, not cool, you know, you should, your body, your choice, all of that. Make the right choice then. Don't, don't uh, lose your life or lose your livelihood to spite us. Those of you who are incredibly healthy and you do everything right and you think you can wait it out, you're a human too. This is happening to us, not because of us or due to some people and this or that. This is happening to all of us. If you're a person of faith, I would imagine that you've already been told, you know, taught to, to um, you know, when in Rome, right? You, you, you abide by laws in the, in the town, in the city, in the state, in the country you're in, usually because of, of, of the works that you're, like the Bible I know says that, you know, and I'm not just talking about Christian faith, but you, you, you abide by the guidelines because you have a faith that your God or your higher power wouldn't have put something in place that the majority is abiding by, you know, obviously there are some exceptions, slavery, Holocaust, I, I could go off. And I guess I have, where am I? This is supposed to be an intro for Brad Feld, y'all. Whoa, <laughs> I guess I had some stuff to say, but my old, I'm going to close the loop here. All I'm saying is um, uh, a few years ago, maybe 15 years ago, my mom said something to me and I, and I, I grew up reading the Bible, so I know what the Bible says. I do not follow any religion today. But she said to me something that I just kept with me because my mom is a person of faith and she definitely believes in God and she definitely speaks to God. And she said to me about the Bible and about her faith that the Bible is not a menu. You do not get to pick and choose the things that you want and send the rest back. So read through what the Bible is telling you <laughs> or whatever uh, uh, materials that you uh, that are the source and let, let that be a guide too. I don't know. I'm talking myself in circles a little bit because I feel like there's no, if you're someone who has your, your heels dug in, nothing I can say can probably change that. You can always move it around and have it work against me. But if in some way, somehow, I have convinced somebody to, to care for themselves in this way, to care for others in this way. People are, oh, our healthcare system is hurting. So many unvaccinated people who will survive are in hospitals taking up the beds of people who need it for other reasons. And you've got healthcare workers uh, uh, leaving and worse. Come on. You can't be that selfish. I know you're not. I know you're not that selfish. You're misguided. And you may think I'm being condescending, but I'm trying to help. So I'm going to stop now. <laughs> hey, Brad, if you listen to this, Brad Feld, um, thanks for letting me completely take over your episode. So Brad Feld, Brad Feld, Brad Feld. He is the guest today. I interviewed Brad just a couple of days ago, and he's amazing. 
And he gave me so much of his wisdom, insights, and time as he's done for the past six plus years. And I appreciate him. Um, he wrote the book uh, Venture Capital 101. He's written startup communities, startup uh, boards, startup CEO he was part of. And uh, the, the book that came out, and I read all these books learning about, about venture. And I read them multiple times, and I still reference, still to this day, I reference some of them. Uh, especially Venture Deals 101. You just can't go wrong there. If you have any interest in venture capital or raising for your company, now, you know, I, I prefer the bootstrapping way or this or that, but I also know that so many people will raise or have raised and they need the tools. They need to inform, the information and this book helps. I was so fortunate and excited to um, participate in, in, in Brad's latest book, which is a follow-up to startup communities. Came out in, uh, I want to say it came out in the last 12 months. I can't remember if it was on this side of the year or last but I, I have a few pages in that, which is of absolute, an absolute full circle moment. So I talked to Brad about one of my favorite topics, hiring, recruiting, and once you have somebody there, how do you treat them? And as always, now in this season three of Your First Million, this episode is brought to you by my new recruiting startup, Hire Runner. Go to hirerunner.co. Now it's called, we call it Runner, it's a street name, Runner. And the, the legal name is hirerunner.co, and that's also the website. So you'll see it both. Hire Runner is also where you'll find Twitter and Instagram, et cetera. Um, more active on Twitter than Instagram, for sure. <laughs> but check out Hire Runner, fractional operations talent. Now, I want to tell you really quickly, we did our pilot you know, for the first 100-plus days starting in September. We have 125 customers who are all B2B. 78% of those customers are one to 10 person teams. So if you're thinking, is this for me? Yes. Starting in Q1 of 2022, so January through March, you'll see us ramp up. What I would say is if you want to be a runner, this is the time to sign up. If you want to hire a runner, this is the time to get on the waiting list because we're going to start opening up that waiting list one by one from the time, you know, first come, first serve. So uh, March is when the app will come out officially. And prior to that, we'll open up a few spots for the customers. So you want to sign up as a customer. Doesn't mean you pay anything. Doesn't mean you are obligated for anything. It's just you are now getting that early access. And if you want to be a runner and join nearly 1,200 people who have signed up since September... Um, to be a runner, come on, do it, sign up. We're going to start sending out invitations again January 3rd for interviews. So you have to be signed up from the website in order to get an invitation to interview. If you don't get an invitation to interview immediately, don't worry about it. We, we are taking people in a little bit at a time so that we can have really thoughtful interviews. And uh, we have a full process and we have... You know, a dozen people working on this internally. So jump on it. Make sure when you fill out that application, you're giving us some information about yourself. Don't make, don't be flippant. I've seen a few people, they'll just think, oh, this is just a quick form. Nobody's really paying attention. This is what we use to invite you for the interviews. So if you just say, I'm cool, we, we don't interview. <laughs> you're not going to ask you to interview. But if you say, this is the work that I've done. This is why I want to be a runner. This is what I think I bring to the table that you're much more likely to get an interview so we can learn more. Okay, longest intro ever. <laughs> Brad Feld on hiring. Let me tell you, this will, this will be game-changing for some of you. Take a listen. So, Brad, one of the, you, you worked with a few of our founders at Backstage Starting in 2020, you worked with a few of our portfolio companies, and I listened to hours of conversation that went on during that time, and I have to tell you, there is a four and a half minute nugget of information that I watch, that I have isolated, and I play for employees, and now I have a new um, recruiting company called Runner 
It's a fractional attempt to hire a recruiting startup. And I play, we use, you know, that information that you gave. And I'm going to tell you what it was about because I'd love to just unpack that more. You talked about, um, someone asked you about hiring and growing from, you know, 7 to 20 or 15 to 30. And you made this uh, quadrant that had um, competencies on, on one axis and culture norms on the other axis. Do you, do you remember this? I do. Yeah. So that it's just distilled in four minutes and 38 seconds. Of, <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I, I will probably play it on this episode, the audio version of it, because it just distills so much learning that's like learned the hard way most times. Do you first want to talk a little bit about um, how you came up with that or how you think about that particular thing? I don't remember how I came up with it. Uh, and I'm not sure that I came up with it. I probably got it from somebody else. Um, but it, it's something I've carried around for a long time. And uh, the important thing to start with is sort of the notion of uh, cultural norms versus culture, because I think people use the word culture in tech uh, and in entrepreneurship very loosely, and they don't really define what they're saying with it. So I like to talk about cultural norms instead of culture, because it forces people to think a little harder about what your norms are. And specifically, uh, one of the cliches in tech that I think today is now viewed as a problem, and, and one of the things that generate a lot of sort of structural inequities uh, over time in companies was this idea of, of culture fit. And the idea that you wanted to, when you hired people, hire people who had, quote, culture fit. And a while ago, I mean, it's probably a decade now, I wrote a blog post that said culture ad instead of culture fit. Yes. And my view was that what you want to do is you want to have people, when you add people to your team, you want them to add to your culture you do want them to subscribe to your cultural norms. So as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you get to define your cultural norms. That's the essence of it. Those norms can change and evolve as the company grows. They don't have to be absolute and unchanging. But, but they're the, the norms of the culture versus specific instantiation of things. And as you hire people, you're looking for people that have a high alignment with your cultural norms. And that's actually not the same thing as culture fit. So I just start with that because I think it's a subtle part of the whole thing. So this, this two by two matrix on one axis was cultural norms um, and the other axis was competence. And the idea that you have four boxes, you have high, low on the culture norm axis and you have you know low, high on the uh, competence axis. And if, if somebody is low on both. They're low competence for the role that you're interviewing them for, looking for, and they're low in terms of their alignment with your cultural norms. I'm using the word alignment carefully instead of the word fit. I think a lot of people would say fit with their cultural norms. I just want to stay away from the phrase culture fit. So that's why I'm saying alignment, but it's the same construct. Um, if they're low, low, you shouldn't hire them. And if they're high, high, you should always hire them, right? And that, those, those are fairly obvious. The trick is what you should do with people who are high-low uh, in the other two boxes. They're a high culture uh, alignment with your or a high alignment with your culture norms, but they're low competence for the role. Somebody you think, wow, this person would be awesome to have in our company just in terms of what their values are and how they think about things, but they really don't have much competence for the role we're hiring for. Correspondingly, the same thing with. Um, high competence, but low alignment with your cultural norms. Wow, this person is extraordinary. Like they're so awesome for this thing that we're looking to hire them for. Their experience and their perspective is off the charts, but they have an extremely low alignment with our cultural norms. I would say, generally speaking, the mistake that companies make, especially early, is that and, and founders make is that they hire people in those boxes. The only box they don't hire people in is the one where it's low, low. And my general view as 
uh, a startup early is that you can only afford to hire people who are in the high, high box. You can't afford to hire people who are high, low or low, high on the other dimensions. And, and the reason for it is if the person's extremely competent, but has no alignment with your, your cultural norms, they're not going to be happy. They're not going to create an environment around them that's happy. They're going to have endless conflict with other people in the company. They're going to stress a lot of things that are unnecessary to stress because they're just not going to want to subscribe to the values of the business. And by the way, there's a good example of this. It has nothing to do with what people think about as general uh, cultural norms. And we'll, let's use remote work as the example. You have two modes uh, that are easy to define. You have in-office and you have remote. And then you have a third mode, which is hybrid. Hybrid is harder to define because it means everything that sits in between fully in the office and fully remote. If you're a fully remote culture, you would never hire somebody who wants to be in the office all the time. And if they say they want to work for the company, they're incredibly competent, but they need to be in the office and you have a fully remote culture, either they will adhere to that culture and learn how to be effective in a fully remote culture or not. And the inverse is true too. If you're an in-office company and somebody is used to working remote and now they're required to come to the office you know, every day, that's probably not going to be a good fit for them. And that in-between stage, that hybrid stage is the weird one because you accommodate people, you figure out ways to make it work for them. If it's a determined, deliberate strategy to be hybrid, you can make it work. If it's a reaction to people that don't want to conform to what you are, which is remote or hybrid, or sorry, remote or in office, it's probably not going to work long-term. And so I just cycle back to this, this notion of the importance when you're young and you're growing to look for people that have high alignment with your cultural norms and high competence for the role you're hiring them for. You know, gym after gym after gym. Um, <laughs> so, so helpful and so thoughtful. Um, what do you say for anyone who pushes back on I don't want to hire for an echo chamber, you know, if they're, you know, whether they call it a, a culture fit or culture norms, isn't it better to hire someone who's going to challenge us to be better or to think outside the box? Yeah. Well, two, two comments. One comment I, that sort of links back to the other. I thought you're going to ask me a different question. The answer is um, uh, the, the answer to the question you didn't ask me is I screw this up all the time. The idea that, you know, in every company I'm involved in and in every situation I'm involved in, I get this right. No way. Right. Second, um, the, the use of the word or the phrase echo chamber, I think is a really powerful one. If you focus as a founder on your cultural norms and defining them broadly, and when you add people to the company, you're looking for people who subscribe or have alignment with those norms, but are additive to your culture. Almost by definition, you will be adding people that are not generating an echo chamber. Now, mm -hmm. if you define your norms in such a way as to be a monoculture, then that's a problem. So if you, you know, let's, let's say, uh, let's take super, super extremes. Um, our cultural norms is we are only going to hire white men. Well, is that a particularly good cultural norm? <laughs> I, you know. No, I'll answer that for you that no, I know it's hypothetical. <laughs> right. I, and I, I, I ask it kind of rhetorically, right? So, absolutely. So, so start at that end of the spectrum like that. Absolutely. You're going to get a monoculture, right? And you're going to have an echo chamber. However, if your cultural norms are things like it is important to us that we challenge each other, but do so in a kind way. What that's going to generate is people that presumably have a wide range of different perspectives, but are not hostile uh, in the way they challenge other people. One of the reasons that cultural norm can be particularly interesting or powerful is if you think about this idea of uh, situations where people don't feel like they belong. Um, and I'll, I'll, you know, there's 
the best the the best sort of reading thing I've ever done on this of of a lived example was Susan Fowler's book about Uber and and her experience at Uber. I mean, there's many 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 things you can read about this notion of of belonging, but this idea that you get recruited into a company that has as a cultural norm we're going to increase gender diversity in our engineering ranks. And that's a cultural norm and that was a stated cultural norm of of Ubers at the time. A bunch of women uh, are recruited into Uber. But then they get stuck in a dynamic where there's no upward mobility for those engineers because the managers are incented to maximize the number of female engineers on their team. And those managers, and I'm probably not saying the story exactly right. So I'm not a reporter. I'm not trying to get exactly the truth, but I'm trying to make a point. And again, I encourage people to read Susan Fowler's book because I think she does an extremely good job of of explaining her own experience with this. But over and over again, women would be passed over for promotions in the engineering team and men would get promotions to other teams, to um, um, higher level positions, to managerial positions, because the managers were motive, were incented to maximize the, the number of women engineers on their team. And so as a woman, you felt like you were constantly being subjugated to something, even though the external cultural norm was to get more women involved. And if you actually looked at the her, her description of it, there's huge turnover of women in the engineering ranks because they'd realized they had nowhere to go. So they left because they didn't feel like they belonged. So I use this as an example, again, hundreds of examples and lived experiences are way better than me trying to interpret somebody else's example. But this notion that you could set a cultural norm that works against this idea of creating um, the opposite of an echo chamber, or you can set a cultural norm that then reinforces the positive that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's that you have alignment with the norms. It's how you then implement them in the context of your company. Hey, it's Arlen. Just real quick. I know this interview is amazing. You're getting a lot of gems from it. I know that. Let me tell you, just a reminder, go to hirerunner.co. I know you're thinking about hiring right now. Brad has got you in your feelings. Go to hirerunner.co for operations talent that you can afford today instead of having to wait until you raise or to the next big thing happens. Get hirerunner.co today. And also check out my friend Chacho's new podcast called What? Running. Totally a coincidence. There's <laughs> a lot of running happening around. Um, running is his new podcast. Check it out. Chacho Valadez. It debuts New Year's Day. Check it out. Maybe a backstage capital production and also maybe sponsored by Runner. Let's see. It's sort of like how I approached um, the idea of pattern matching in VC. And I turned that negative connotation that had, it had become to some people of same people getting the same dollars. And I said, I'm pa- pattern matching with a different pattern, right? So it's, it's what, you, what you make of it um, that makes a lot of sense. I think, I think, I think that's, I want to just emphasize that because pattern matching is, in, is, is, there's several words that I think are really problematic and harmful in the context of entrepreneurship. Um, and, and two of them that are high on my list are pattern matching and meritocracy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and the reason that and they're they're cousins of each other, right? Because people say I'm pattern matching, so this thing worked for me in the past, so I'm going to do it again in the future. And that, in terms of selecting founders to fund or selecting types of businesses to invest in, or selecting people for different roles. That pattern matching creates the monoculture, the echo chamber that you're describing, because it is this worked for me in the past. It's going to work for me again in the future and anything different. I'm not going to look at. I like your different pattern metaphor. It's a very powerful way to sort of turn the thing on its side and try to turn it to something that's useful. But generally speaking, I cringe whenever I hear the phrase pattern matching. as. A oh, yeah, absolutely. That's why 
I, it really was using something that had been weaponized in a way against black and brown founders and, and saying, okay, if that's the game, then this is how I'm playing the game. Yeah. And I also recognize when I started and today even more so that, you know, part of what I say is that one of the things I want my legacy, when I want my legacy to be is that I made black women feel entitled And, you know, I had an interview with Barbara Corcoran and she said, entitled, you know, that that's, you know, that's an interesting play on like use of words. And I said, I meant it that way. So when I say I want to pattern match and use that, use that in my own way, I also recognize that you can't do that even with my pattern forever or else you become the problem. But there has to be this sort of turning you know, this curve that happens that starts to equalize things. And then what do you do when you're in power? Do you do the same thing you used to rail against? Do you become that, you know? And so I, that's, you know, a different topic, but th- that's how I look at it. But I, I, under, I completely understand what you're saying about uh, echo chambers. And, and I think people, like you said, I think what you're alluding to is that people use phrases just willy-nilly <laughs> and they don't really think about what they're saying sometimes with these buzzwords and what they truly mean well i know you love books so i'm going to i'm going to toss out another another book that reflects on the last thing you just said which is this notion of power mm. and what happens when the power eventually shifts but you've done this thing culturally you know, that reinforces a different version of monoculture. It's a book called The Power. It's fiction. Mm. Came out a few years ago. Uh, I just looked up the author. It's a woman named Naomi Alderman. And it it was awesome. It's it, awesome, awesome book. It's a basic premise of the book is that um, uh, young women, teenage girls, I guess, develop a, a genetic power and the genetic power allows them to essentially kill men mm-hmm. um, or ex, you know, uh, inflict pain on men. And so what happens is that in the society that exists in this book, women, young girls who are of it, or teenage girls who become young women become stronger, physically more powerful than men, which is a flip of what has historically been the norm. And as this book unfolds, um, by the way, there, the, you have to be uh, uh, younger than a certain age to have the power. Above the, a certain age, women don't have that power. They're the pa- parents of the kids who have it. And the kids are originally, I think in the book, it's been a couple of years now, but I think they're sort of viewed as freaks. But they end up in, inhibiting or developing power and developing power, not just individually, but in society. So it's a liberation story in some sense of these oppressed uh, young young girls becoming women, but then they become the leaders of the society and mm-hmm. become the oppressors, mm-hmm. right? And it's done fairly quickly, so it's not over multiple generations, but the point is the same, right? It's that when you have power, understanding what you do with that power is important in our I think as a, as a species, when people have power, they generally acu- use it to accumulate more power. And even in situations where they're trying to do things that generate real change, you start to see um, the negative effect of that more and more power play out. And politics is an easy place uh, uh, to see it over and over again. Um, but I think in entrepreneurship, it is something that uh, not just uh, uh, in gender and race, but we see it on dimensions, for example, of age in entrepreneurship, you know, which is not talked about nearly as much um, uh, as gender and race. But there's enormous ageism uh, in the context of entrepreneurship. And that is something that... Um, uh, you know, if you look at it and say, well, you know, what problem are we actually trying to solve? My view is that you want to democratize entrepreneurship globally. You want to make entrepreneurship accessible for anyone who wants to engage in entrepreneurship. 
That's a principle of mine. And as a result, then coming back to this notion that you said of power, just linking it back, as you start to develop power, depending on what your own goals are, how you use that power matters a lot. And um, I, I think it's, uh, we're, we're in a place uh, as a society where the, you know, the inequities generated by COVID um, have been profound. And, you know, an inequity that, that entrepreneurs in tech benefited from uh, the dynamic around COVID, whereas many other entrepreneurs who are not in tech or many other small businesses were really badly negatively impacted by it. And so then understanding sort of what to do with this, uh, I think is really challenging. And my hope is that people keep pressing on it versus just pressing on a single dimension of change. Yes. You know, Brad, I I feel like I could talk to you for probably a good five hours on this and scratch the surface of what you think about in a given day. Um, I don't want to, because we have limited time, I don't want to leave our conversation without touching on all of the ways you've thought about mental health in entrepreneurship over the years. And we don't have to rehash a lot of things, but I think anyone hearing you for the first time, um, you know, when I speak about mental health or do things, implement things at Backstage Capital or at Runner, uh, the people, the employees are just so taken aback. Anyone who's worked anywhere else is just like, wow, your four day work week and this and that and bring your kid to work all the time, you know, but a lot of it I learned from you. Um, and it's very true. And I, I, if you listen to any other episode, I don't gas people up. You know, it's not just because you're on the show. I really do, do learn a lot about um, treating employees, not just altruistically, but for, you know, productivity, but treating them really well from you. So when you think about this new world we're in, where you talked about hybrid and remote and this and that, What's, what's top of mind for you when it comes to, comes to like the combination or the convergence of mental health for entrepreneurs and what we're facing next? I think there's a huge stressor that we're dealing with and will be in front of us. But I think we also have uh, collectively had a big release valve opened over the last couple of years, not, not because of COVID generally, but because of, again, changes in cultural norms around entrepreneurship. Um, you know, a decade ago, uh, the stigma associated with talking about mental health, um, you know, in the context of being an entrepreneur or, or high growth entrepreneurial business was extraordinary. It was not a topic that people were able to, or comfortable talking about. It was, um, uh, it was in many ways, our whole society struggles under the stigma of this, but there was just no um, room to have the conversation. Um, That changed in the last decade. I think it really started changing around 2013, 14. And I think it's been amplified. The change has been amplified, not just in entrepreneurship with many, many more entrepreneurs talking openly um, about their own experiences with depression, anxiety, uh, directly or with family members or friends or employees, lots of people shifting away from this notion of, uh, you know, negative or toxic work cultures, this idea that leaders can't show weakness, cliche, you know, words that became cliches like vulnerability and authenticity, but sort of all this stuff became part of the language, but it wasn't just an entrepreneurship, right? It was in professional sports. And we've seen that not, you know, there was a New York Times article this weekend uh, about football being the last of the major professional sports to start to really address this. But, you know, the Olympics have addressed it. Tennis has addressed it. Basketball has addressed it. There's a fantastic movie uh, that Michael Phelps stars in called Weight of Gold. It's an HBO Mm -hmm. movie that talks about uh, Olympic athletes and their struggles with mental health issues, especially depression. Um, The ability for people to talk about suicide and, you know, not curl up or run away from it. 
Like, I feel like that's been the valve that's opened. In contrast, the stress that's in front of us, um, which really has been a culmination of uh, many, many things. When the COVID crisis started in March, I described it as three interwoven crises. I described it as a health crisis that uh, generated an economic crisis uh, that was going to generate a mental health crisis. And I think we're now sort of in full throes of the mental health crisis on many, many levels. And the instantiation of so much of the divisiveness that uh, everybody feels across so many dimensions in our society today, I think is a function, not only of, but partially of just the incredible stress and anxiety um, so many people are under because of the dislocation and changes to our lives, the patterns that are not the ones we've had, whether we like those patterns or not, the fact that they're different creates stress. And um, in entrepreneurship, um, we are having, and I, I think it's going to keep, I think it's going to keep playing out this big separation between how you feel like you have to present yourself and what is actually going on. Um, the, you know, maybe, a, a, a yeah, I'll use a cliche-ish example. Um, uh, I use two phrases that come up that I think are uh, tempatomy. One is crushing it and the other is fake it till you make it. <laughs> um, you know, there was a big high profile company that was fraudulent that, that blew up recently. Um, uh, and then the Theranos trial sort of generated public stuff about, um, uh, about fake it till you make it. And there were, you know, a couple of articles written and I got reached out to by, uh, you know, uh, uh, a couple of journalists asking about like, you know, what do you advise your entrepreneurs around fake it to your make it? And my response, which didn't make it into any articles was don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't lie. Don't bullshit people. Just be what it is. Like, you know, own it, work your best. When you make mistakes on them, when you get something right, you know, keep after it. But this culture of that is so extreme. The other extreme piece of the culture that I think, and, and that generates huge emotional challenges if you're, you know, if you're faking it, but not making it, or if you convince yourself that you're making it, but you're actually not. And ultimately, you know, things normalize, like the reality comes into play, the crushing, it's the same kind of thing, like I'm crushing it, I'm crushing it, everybody's crushing it. You want to know something? That ain't true. And by the way, people might be crushing a thing, but they're failing at some other thing. And yeah, so this everyone, sort of, everyone, right? Everyone. So this notion of having to comport yourself in a certain way, um, I think is, is just really extraordinarily challenging and, and not very, um, not very healthy. So the, the, the sort of balance of those things, like the ability to talk about it, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. You know what? I have, you know, bipolar disorder. You know what? I have, uh, I'm, I, I've got hypomania, you know, you know what? I don't know what I have, but I just don't feel right. Um, or you know what? My, a parent just died and a friend just committed suicide and, you know, my business is going well, but I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Like being able to say that out loud in the context of being an entrepreneur with your friends, with your support system, with your team uh, is important, especially as, you know, we go forward and try to you know, hopefully with entrepreneurship, like if people believe they're trying to build, you know, I'm trying to change the world. I'm trying to build a better planet. I'm trying to build a better society. I'm trying to make something, whatever your goals are. If those goals are positive for our species, incorporating mental health into that feels to me like a critical piece of it. Yeah. Um, I am, of course, going to make all sorts of introductions to this episode. Um, so, We'll we'll end on one one more question. In the past, Brad, you have said at least tweeted. I don't know if you said it anywhere else, but on Twitter. But you've tweeted years ago, and then you know maybe a couple of times that you do not care or did not care about legacy, your legacy. And I replied to that, and this is probably six five years ago. I replied to that too late and too bad <laughs> because you already have one. 
I am curious and have been curious, has that thinking changed? Yeah. So um, probably, probably some, because I, un- I understand my definition of the, the, the phrase or the word legacy may be different than others. So like, you know, I, one of the things that's very powerful about uh, or, uh, powerful is the wrong word. One of the things I enjoy a lot is I, I try to always just learn, right? You know, you said earlier, a nice thing. You've learned a lot from me and it's bi-directional. I learn a ton from you mm-hmm. and I learn from you, not because I'm actively looking for a thing to learn, but because I just open myself to being willing to hear whatever the inputs are, good or bad, positive, negative, supportive, not supportive. And um, I, the, the construct of legacy would be an example of that. For me, I am not behaving in a way to generate a legacy. I am not taking choices, making choices of what I am doing because I want people to categorize or classify me a certain way um, or uh, ascribe uh, certain things to me, uh, you know, over time. And when I think about legacy, when I'm dead, I will be dead. And <laughs> I, I, oh, I agree. To, we, we, we share that same. Right? I won't be able to react to those things. And so when I think about my use of I don't care about a legacy, there's an ego gratification feedback loop around that while one's alive. Wow, look how great that person is. Wow, look at the wonderful things they've done. Wow, look at what they've accomplished. Wow, look at the influence they're having on others. And, and that ego gratification loop is probably the labeling of legacy for me. It's like, I'm not, I don't care about that. Do I, by the way, do I get any ego gratification? Yeah. I mean, I think people are full of shit when they say they have no ego or they're full of shit when they say that positive accolades don't make them feel good. I'd rather somebody say something positive to me about something I've done than negative. I'd rather somebody appreciate me than not. But it's not driving. It's not the motivation of my behavior to get that. Mm -hmm. And so I realize that when I, in some ways, when when I say it with more robustness, like, do I care at all about, uh, and I'll, I'll end with an example. Do I care at all about what people think about me and what I've done? And I think that deeply I don't. However, it is false to say that I don't appreciate mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. others appreciate me or like me or respect me or feel gratitude for something I've done. And I prefer that over the people who dislike me or think that I'm not good or, you know, so, so that's the, that's the, the richness of the word. Like in some ways, legacy doesn't capture it all. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, we're talking about definitions of it. The simplest way I can describe what I think about legacy and why I th- why I know you are already uh, have already captured one is that it is in your legacy is in the people who you affect. Yep. That it's and it's it, in fact not about you and not about me. It's about the people we affect, and you can tangibly see it. And intangibly, not, you know, in, in some ways can't see it. Like you, if I hadn't told you, you wouldn't have known that you're the reason that I'm, I gave us a four, four day work week. Right. But then there are ways where you walk into buildings that were like, yeah, I read your book and I started this company because of you. Right. So that's where I see legacy. And I appreciate the, the non ego version, you know, with a grain of salt. I appreciate that. But that's what what I'm saying. It's too late. You've already you've already set it in motion in a way that is not going back in the toothpaste in the tube. <laughs> I I embrace that and I embrace that uh, positively with vigor. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, Brad. I, I appreciate talking to you always, and I appreciate who you are. Um, I I hope we can we can do it again sometime. Anytime, Marlon. It's always awesome to be. Here. Hey, 
is Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at Arlen Was Here on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N Was Here. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. Your First Million is produced by Anna Eichenauer, executive producer Arlen Hamilton. Associate producer, Chacho Valadez. Theme song is used by permission by the artist, Tobey Nguigwe.